The upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. And now for something completely different. Hey, I was, I'm a Hall of Famer. I'm in three Halls of Fame. For the young fans, they don't give a damn. They just give a damn about themselves and what they're hearing now. And I got no problem with those rules. I know the rules going in. I'm happy to play the game that way. And when Ivan came off with that uh, knee drop from the top rope and he bent me, I thought that something happened. I couldn't hear a thing. You could have heard the pin drop in that arena. It touched me so deeply that when I went in the dressing room, I really felt depressed. I'll tell you that, I'll tell you right to his face. If it's Hogan and I, if he wanted to get in a real street fight with me, trust me, he would lose, and he knew it. You know, that's the other thing. They give you the belt, and they're like, okay, you're in charge of me. I was like, what? When you mentioned a guy like Harley Race, that kind of legendary status, it's obvious why people would get upset. Or as I'm concerned, Roddy Piper was not a wrestler. He wasn't even a good worker. If he had to go out and work his way to the top and not have good friends like Jim Barnett. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying he's not a good guy. He's just not a tough guy. Bro, I swear to you, I don't have an ego. Like, I don't give a crap. I, that stuff is not important to me. People don't know me. They have no idea of who I am. They know of me as being a fictional character that they saw on TV. People didn't understand that, you know, the guy they saw in the ring that happened to be using his real name and happened to actually be the president of the company, they really believed that that guy that they loved to hate was actually a pretty decent guy. And I think many people have the perception that I really was that character. Welcome to the two-man power trip of wrestling. I'm your host, JP Jabaz. With me today, very special guest, TV host, radio host, sports journalist. Of course, you will recognize him as the host of TSN's Off the Record. He is Mr. Michael Landsberg. Michael, welcome to the two-man power trip. How are you doing? Hey, John. I'm uh, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Uh, always enjoy this kind of discussion, and uh, I am looking forward to it. So let's uh, let's get to her. What is going on in your world? What have you been up to? What are you doing? Uh, right now, uh, I left TSN about a year ago, and I have been really uh, devoting myself to talking about mental health. Uh, on Off the Record, the show that I hosted uh, in 2009, I was interviewing former New Jersey Devil, Stefan Riche. I don't know if you're a hockey fan, uh, but Stefan Riche, I read just before I went to greet the guests in the green room, I read that he had battled depression in the 1990s. And I thought, oh, I should ask him about it. It'll make for an interesting question. I had battled depression at that point for the previous decade and anxiety all my life, but I never spoke about it because I thought, who would care? Like, why, why would I share it? I wasn't ashamed, though. Everybody in my life knew. So I said to him, hey, Stefan, would it be okay if I asked you about depression? And he said, I'd rather not talk about it. And I said, okay, well, I res uh, respect that. But if you'll talk about it, I'll talk about it. He asked me what I would talk about. I told him, he said, let's do it. We went on the air. We talked for maybe two minutes and that changed the course of my life. I found out the impact that simply sharing uh, your mental health battle without shame and embarrassment and without seeming weak had a huge impact on people. So I've kind of year after year done more and more of it. And now I spend my, all my time doing it. Sick, not weak, right? Is the name of, of yeah. was a hashtag originally and then obviously the website. Yeah, and it's uh, it's our charity, Sick Not Week Charitable Foundation. Uh, you know, we named it that because Sick Not Week is a statement. I mean, you could have called it Mental Health Foundation. I mean, but that doesn't really mean anything. But Sick Not Week is kind of the way I think people need to look at it. And if we saw mental illness, like depression, for instance, as uh, not being a weakness, but a sickness, this stigma would disappear. But John, uh, people, especially men, but people of all ages and all genders and all races and in all locations don't want to be seen as weak. And if you perceive the illness as a weakness, you're not going to share. You're not going to get help. You're going to suffer in silence. And that doesn't lead to any place good. When you say sick, not weak, and, and you know, like you're saying, a lot of like you thinking a lot of men were thinking, oh, it's weak to, to mention it or they don't want to mention it at all. Or when they do mention it, they feel weak, like kind of just go into that a little bit more. if you can. Yeah, it's to me, that's at the heart of the stigma, which is still a factor when it comes to mental health. The perception that somehow an illness like depression in particular uh, is uh, is self-inflicted. 
that we let it happen to ourselves or we made it happen to ourselves. And as a result, um, we don't want to share because we have the sense of shame. And the belief that we carry around is often, it's a weakness. It's not an illness like cancer or diabetes or lupus or juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. It is a weakness and somehow it's self-inflicted. And that's why people won't share. That's why it's the only illness that I know of where people would go, um, if you said to them, for instance, like I, I know the pain of depression. Uh, if you said to someone, I think, I don't think you're okay. Like, it seems like you're not doing well. Uh, and they denied it and deny it because, uh, eventually they say, look, I'm not going to a doctor. I'm not going to see anyone about this. It's the only illness that people would say that about. No one would say, you know, if you had this awful toothache, uh, I'm not going to see a doctor. Or if you were drowning and someone threw you a life jacket, you're not going to turn it away. But when mental illness hits us, we just don't seem to be sure that it's actually an illness as opposed to a self-inflicted wound. You think we're getting better? We're progressing a yeah, lot more? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's no doubt, but also there, there's no doubt because uh, I travel around giving talks about this and, you know, I, I talk to people every day about it online usually. And there's no doubt that the perception is still there. I mean, I will hear from, uh, the partner of, uh, of someone who will reach out to me and say, you know, my partner, either male or female, I, I mean, it, it, I'm not sure how to phrase it, uh, but my partner is, uh, is really struggling and he won't go for help. How do I convince him that he needs to go for help? Uh, and I, I, I hear that all the time. Uh, statistically, uh, there was a study done uh, in Canada in 2019, so just before the pandemic, 75% of people that responded uh, said that they would not share a mental health problem with their employer. So that stigma still exists too, that people are afraid, hey, if I share this thing, you know, my boss is going to look at me differently. I won't get a, you know, opportunities for advancement. They'll just think that I'm weak. Which is not good. We should, can, well, obviously should be above that and our bosses forget about it. I mean, they should be above that and not, not look down upon us for that too. But it's a lot better than it was like, he's like maybe in the nineties, right? I mean, we're, we're, we're learning more and more I gradually. So. Yeah. I mean, it's disappointing only because so much time and effort has been spent on trying, you know, how, how many charities have you heard about that use the word stigma in them, you know, stomp the stigma, crush the stigma, you know, banish the stigma. There's like millions of them. And yet the stigma still seems to be a problem and uh you know that's what that's what we do we got our charitable foundation uh licensed by the uh, uh we call it revenue canada you would call it the irs by by saying our our mandate is to show people that a mental illness like depression is a sickness not a weakness so i i mean i found that out uh on off the record one day i just i wasn't trying to do anything good I just thought I'll ask a question that will get me an interesting answer because that's your job. And then I saw the reaction to it uh, and that changed my life. So what do you do personally to battle it, live with it? Like, what are you doing for depression? Well, I'm on medication uh, and uh, I always I always kind of footnote that with I'm, I'm not here to be an advocate for meds. Uh, there's there's I wish I wasn't on medication. I, I hate being on meds, but I hate the illness more. So I have learned to love the thing I hate the least. Uh, and in this case, I hate the, the medication less than I hate the illness. Uh, medication gave me my life back, uh, maybe saved my life as well. So I, uh, I am lucky to have lived in a time that medication existed, right? Doesn't work for everyone. It's not right for everyone. But what I say is that if, if you feel sick enough, uh, and I know what that's like. If you have lost all joy in your life or the ability to experience joy, if your self-esteem seems to have disappeared, if you feel like you're isolated and hopeless, if you experience that, you need to make a commitment to do anything to get better. So it's like 
I will fight for my happiness no matter what. And everything is on the table, whether it be meds or therapy, or now there's all kinds of new treatments that involve psychotropic drugs like, like ketamine, right? And like uh, magic mushrooms. And uh, there's deep brain stimulation and magnetic stimulation. There's, there's things that I would do if I had a choice before I went on medication. You need to commit to the fight because if you're sick enough with something like depression, John, you are living, but you're not really alive because you can't feel joy. And that is a tragic way to live. Were you just completely unhappy without joy? Like when you're saying, when you were talking uh, to Stefan Riche and stuff like that, was that the, the first sign that you had that you were had depression? Oh, no. No, 97, we started off the record in 1997. And um, that's when immediately, it's funny, two things in my life going on. On one hand, you know, I had this amazing opportunity after hosting SportsCenter for five or six years, I had this great opportunity to have a, a show with my name on it, right? And to basically, you know, do anything in that half hour that we were given. And we created this show called Off the Record where we could put anybody on that we thought you would be interested in hearing from. Didn't just have to be people tied to sports, didn't have to just be players or coaches or general managers. Uh, we put on musicians of all kinds. Uh, we put on actors, we put on politicians. So uh, especially music, I mean, we had, we had, we had uh, I guess he was Puff Daddy back then. Uh, we had Pink on the show, like, like what a cool job that was. Uh, we had Spike Lee on the show. We had Vin Diesel on the show. Like here I am sitting with these people and I'm going, wow, this is amazing. You know, not only do I get to, um, you know, experience them for a short period of time, but I get to, to control the, the environment. Like I thought it was really cool, especially with directors that we had on the show, like Spike Lee, like I'm saying, okay, Spike, here's the way we do the show. And when I ask the first question, you know, I'm going to ask who wants to answer it first and then I'll look at you and you jump right in. I thought eh, that was really cool. So I had this great job, but uh, I, over about an eight month period, John, I started to battle uh, something that I didn't even know I was battling. You know, I, I try to, when, when I talk about this, I, I try to give people the benefit of my experience, which can make a difference to their experience. And what I found was uh, I had battled depression for probably eight months before I came to the conclusion that I was in need of some kind of treatment because uh, it can happen because it can happen so slowly. It can happen like like to the point where you don't notice it's happening. These tiny, tiny, tiny changes in us that add up to a big change. And for me, it was this realization one day when I turned down an offer to do something really fun. I thought, why, why did I do that? And then I started to think back to the previous six months or eight months. And I realized I had started really to retreat from life. And the person that I was, I no longer was. And the person that I became, I did not want to be. And that was kind of like this awakening for me where uh, the next day I talked my way into a psychiatrist's office. Uh, and that was kind of the first step for me in the road back. You said 1997 is, is kind of like the start of off the record. So you figured you're like on top of the world at that point. Yes. So that's got to be an internal struggle too. It's like, that's weird. Like best thing going for me. I'm not feeling like it. Yeah. And that's a, uh, that's a great question, John, that uh, I hear all the time because of, as I said, the conversations that I have, because I'm, I don't know what my role in the mental health world is. I guess I'm a mental health advocate. Uh, and I hear all the time from people that will say, uh, I'm so ashamed that I feel depressed because I have so many great things in my life. Uh, and that that's typical of what people think. I fortunately did not think that, but people people believe that, right? So they don't believe that they're entitled to help because they don't believe that they're necessarily sick with something. They think that somehow they've rejected the good things in their life uh, and have fallen into this depressive hole, um, which they won't ask for treatment to get out of because they feel like it was their fault they're in the hole. Do you think that a lot of people also think like, oh, you're just having a bad day. You'll get over it. Like, do they have that sure. aspect too? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, that, I mean, that's the stigma, right? You know, uh, and I, my, my, you know, I, I never, I never got offended by anything I heard from people. And I, to this day, have never once been offended by anything anyone has said to me when it comes to mental health. 
uh, why, why would I care about somebody else's opinion? You know, I uh, and I was fortunate that my my family understood, uh, my employer understood, and that's all I really needed. But uh, there's things that people say that um, are really hurtful to other people, like, you know, um, when when you say something like, oh, it's just a bad day or, oh, we all go through it. I mean, that I I I, I hate that we all go through it. No, we don't all go through it. We all have bad days. We all have sadness in our life. We all have things that we're anxious about. But those are not mental illnesses. Those are inevitabilities in life. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I talk about um, my dad died in January. That makes me sad, but it doesn't make me depressed. Um, so I think, it, you know, part of this is educating people who, who just don't understand. I mean, the biggest audience that's out there for a talk like I would give would be caregivers, people that care about someone, a partner, a parent, uh, you know, a brother, sister, an employer. Uh, th those are the people that need to understand that they don't understand. You know, like depression is one of the few things that we believe we, we get it, right? I call it the arrogance of the healthy brain. We believe somehow that we have experienced bad times in our life, but we have been able to overcome them. Whereas me, Landsberg, that guy, uh, you know, he had to go to the doctor. He had to go on medication. You know, he talks that he has a sickness. I am strong and he is weak. And that, to me, uh, is what the caregiver, if you want to be of use to the person you care about, you need to acknowledge the fact that you actually don't understand it. I mean, I, I would never uh, like, for instance, uh, my depression is mono depression, right? I'm not bipolar. Uh, although uh, when I get really energetic, people think, oh, my God, I think he's manic, but <laughs> I'm not. But I would say, John, that I have never experienced mania. So for me to explain, like, like the, the, the mania part of bipolar is damaging to people because um, they, they lose their better judgment. They do things. They take risks. Um, they have behaviors that are totally not typical for them. But I can't understand that. Like, I, I can't understand why, if you wanted to be faithful to your wife, why you would go out and cheat on your wife because you have this thing called mania. I'm not saying it's not valid at all. I'm saying I can't understand it. And I say the same thing to people who think they can understand depression but haven't been through it. You can't understand it. I can't understand schizophrenia. I can't understand what it's like to have, you know, like these voices in my head telling me to do certain things. Um, so I think that that's kind of at the heart of how do we become better caregivers? And that's understanding that you don't understand. Yeah, that's so true because people think that they understand things that they don't. And like you said, the, the almost like the arrogance or the ignorance of it is almost like off the charts sometimes, but they don't understand, but they think they understand. That's like the worst. Yeah, yeah, that is. But, you know, I'm not suggesting at all that I would have, was any different before I felt depression. I, you know, I like when I first got hit by it, like it was probably by the time I sort of declared myself uh, screwed in the head by depression, it took me eight months, right? So let's say 1998. Uh, I, I wanted to go around and apologize to everybody that I had ever judged. I never said anything to anyone. I never said, oh, you're weak or, you know, suck it up or what do you have to be depressed about? But I thought those things. And then the first time I realized that was what I was experiencing, it floored me. It was a thousand times worse than I ever imagined. I had no control over my ability to experience joy. It was, it was like no matter what I did, nothing felt right. Nothing felt good. Nothing tasted good. Nothing smelled good. Nothing was good. And I could never understand that until the moment when I understood it. Man, just like thinking of, of you, so um, like calm, cool, collected, your interviews and just thinking about it, you wouldn't think like, not that, oh, you had something bad, but you wouldn't think like, wow, like you wouldn't, like, you know what I mean? Like you didn't, weren't oh, in full yeah. control because your interviews, you're in like full control, no matter who you had on. It was amazing. John, uh, thanks for saying that. And uh, you're 100% correct. And that's one of the reasons why I, I think I'm well suited for this, because I'm the opposite of what you would perceive as someone with depression. And that is proof uh, of a few things. Number one, that it can it can hit any of us. But number two, that we can wear the mask. Somebody with depression, uh, you know, I, I tragically heard about 
uh, I think someone responded to something I did on TikTok this morning. And they said that um, they lost a brother, I think, 10 years ago to suicide. And the point was, uh, she said, I didn't know anything. My parents didn't know anything. No one had any clue. My brother showed no signs whatsoever of depression. And then we found out afterwards that he actually you know, was depressed, depressed enough to take his own life. But that's that's an example of, of just how good we can be at wearing the mask. You know, I, I can fool people into thinking I'm OK when I'm really not. Because I, I, you know, for this show, obviously, we do a lot of wrestling stuff. And that's how I kind of came across you. You doing the wrestling interviews and Vince McMahon. I mean, there's no, nobody that like wouldn't get intimidated by him. But then I see you interviewing him a few times. I'm like, man, this guy is like, you know, he is like in control, no matter if Vince always thinks he's in control, like you were in control of the interview. So I, that was like when you first, I mean, God, 1998 came on my radar really. Cause I was like, wow, this guy did an awesome interview with Vince McMahon and not intimidated. Didn't back that like you were in full control. So it seemed, you know? Yeah, no, I, I, I think I was. And also, uh, there were different times when I was feeling okay from my depression because like in 1998, I went on medication uh, and was on for about two years, then went off and I was fine for a year. Then I relapsed. I did that cycle four times. The last time uh, asked me to explain what this tattoo is and it relates to that story. But um, so there were times when I, when I felt pretty good uh, and the job that I did, you see, no one ever said to me after a show, well, that, that was that wasn't your best. But in my mind, it wasn't my best in my mind, because we listen to ourselves way more closely than anybody else listens to us. Right. You hear as a broadcaster, you hear every syllable, every sound that comes out of your mouth. As an actor, uh, you would do the same thing. You would be judging how you delivered a line. So no one said to me, are, are you okay? Like not once, not one time, but in my mind, I was awful. Uh, and that gets to one of the, one of the worst things about mental illness is the loss of self-esteem. You know, you can take a person who has what I've been accused of a cocky strut, uh, and I can still look like I got the cocky strut, but I won't, I won't feel that confidence that um, that I was gifted, I think, from my parents in a lot of ways who just believed in everything I did. So uh, I think probably some shows I was feeling OK and some shows I was just acting. And you're right about Vince. But Vince gave me the confidence, I, I think, to do that job for the next 17, 18 years, uh, because I, I felt like he, we were in we were in the uh, makeup room. He was in the makeup chair and I was standing behind him, talking to him, looking in the mirror. And uh, he said something and I said something sort of typical Landsberg, smart ass comment or whatever. <laughs> and he kind of gave me a look like, yeah, maybe you beat me on that or whatever. And I thought, oh, my God, I just I just stood up to Vince McMahon. I can do this. Uh, and then we went and did the show. And I think that was the, uh, you know, uh, the Bret Hart screw job show where uh where he said i didn't lie to brett and i said well i don't understand he said what well, i didn't lie i said yeah but you said that it you decided in advance it was going to be a draw and then all of a sudden you know you got them to ring the bell and it was not a draw so how is that not a lie he said well i didn't lie i said well no it doesn't make any sense and i just remember sort of pausing and he went yeah okay i lied in that case but i couldn't let him leave with the belt or whatever so that gave me the confidence to to um, to do the next interview with somebody who, in theory, I should be intimidated by. But here, here's the scariest thing about the job or the most vulnerable you are is that you are now having a debate. You are now uh, arguing potentially with somebody about their life and their world. So here, you know, I'm talking to Vince about wrestling and, uh, you know, and things that he's done and WWF at the time. And uh, but that's not my world. So I got to be pretty confident that I can go with him and debate things with him, knowing that that I don't live in that world. That's one of those things that. I don't know if a lot of people would be able to do what you did. You know what I mean? Like, no, you know, like they might say, oh, all right, we'll move on. But you were like, no, you're, you're lying. <laughs> like, it's not true. Like you lied. Yeah. Yeah. But that was also, you know, that was uh, uh, I was I, I, 
I don't know if I could say I was trained for it. I mean, I, I worked as, uh, you know, um, I was obsessed with becoming a, a broadcaster uh, on television, uh, a sports broadcaster. Uh, so I, um, I, in a lot of ways, uh, everything I had done before off the record prepared me for off the record. Uh, and uh, for some reason, uh, I kind of just fell into this. But it's just the, the way I normally am, John. If, if you know, if you and I were watching, uh, what's what's your favorite sport outside of wrestling? Football. Okay. And who's your team? Giants. New York Giants. Okay. So if you made a comment about the New York Giants, uh, I would challenge you on that comment, even if I didn't agree with it, just for fun, right? Uh, and you know, we would go back and forth because that's what that's what sports fans do, right? You know, you you debate. It's no fun to you know sit with people that agree with you all the time. Uh, and I was always like that when it came to sports. So now uh, I kind of think I'm I'm suited to the role of asking questions and kind of demanding answers because that's just the way I am. Got to get back to Vince in a second, but I want to ask you about that tattoo. What does it mean? Why did you get it? When did you get it? What like what is it? It says eleven twenty four zero eight Y U L M H five two one zero four zero zero. Eleven twenty four zero eight November the twenty fourth two thousand and eight Y U L is the Montreal Airport code. M H five two one is Marriott Hotel Room five twenty one zero four zero zero is four a.m. in the morning. Uh, we were uh, in Montreal shooting off the record, and uh, I had gone through the previous year, which was my worst depression ever, uh, anxiety through the roof. Uh, and I was sitting on the edge of my bed, and I thought, "Wow, I know why people take their own lives." Uh, and I wasn't a danger to myself because I'd been through it before. As I told you, I, I had been on medication, then went off and relapsed. And I was always hesitant to go back on thinking, I don't need it this time. But I needed it that time. And I sat on the edge of the bed and I thought, this is why people take their own lives. Because when you can't feel anything but pain, there's not much incentive to get out of bed. There's not much incentive, you know, to go on with your life. And the only way for some people to perceive the end of the pain is the end of their life. And the only way to combat that is to try to find a way to give them hope that tomorrow could be better than today. That's that's the only way that you can convince someone that um, taking their own life is is the wrong thing to do, because they will tell you, I want to end my pain. And unless you can suggest to them a way that they can end their pain without ending their life, it's a really tough battle to face. When that is going on in your head, were you thinking the worst? Like no, no. Okay. But I knew, like, if you would have said to me, uh, "Hey, Michael, you know what you're feeling now and what you have felt for the last year uh, is going to be with you forever. We can't do anything for you." Uh, I would have been a danger to myself then. Not not that night necessarily, but I couldn't. I couldn't have gone on, you know, indefinitely. Uh, and you know it's proof that you can love your wife, you can love your kids, you can love your parents, you can love your job, you can love all of these things, but that doesn't lessen the pain and it doesn't lessen the fear that the pain will still be with me tomorrow. You know, people will, will often say, well, you know, not to me, but to, you know, someone who attempts to take their own life, you know, how could you do that? Look, look at all the great things you have to live for. Uh, but those things don't register. And we all have a voice in our head with depression that tells us the things that we least want to hear. I mean, imagine, I mean, you have two kids. Imagine believing in your head, John, just think about this, that you are convinced that your kids would be better off if you uh, took your own life. Imagine that. Like, that's the most absurd thing in the world. What kid ever did well for the rest of his life because his parent took his or her own life? It's absurd. Nothing could be more crushing or devastating. Yet the illness has the ability to convince us of things because it robs us of our self-esteem. And then we start to, to sort of percolate these ideas in our head that, okay, you know, my kids would be better off without me. Uh, and I, I mean, I, I have spoken to people who attempted suicide and, uh, you know, thankfully, um, did not complete suicide. And I said, well, what were you thinking? Uh, what, you know, how did you deal in your mind with, um, with these people that love you? Uh, and the explanation is, I thought, uh, and I've heard this a million times, I thought that, you know, my kids would be sad for a little while, but they'll be better off without me. Scary thought, because I've had family members that tried, thank God, 
uh, survive, but said the same thing. But their children, I think, would have been way worse off, you know, ha- without, you know what I mean? Like, it's the exact opposite of what they think at, totally. at the time. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And that's the same voice that, that I would hear. You know, it, it's the voice of depression. It, I mean, it's not like a voice like you hear, like with schizophrenia, you may hear a voice or you would hear voices. It's, it's these thoughts that, that come into your head that it's, it's like your worst enemy got a list of all the things you don't want to hear, you know, all the things that you felt vulnerable about, all of the fears that you had. And then that enemy repeats them to you over and over again. You're not good enough. You're not good at your job. You're not a good father. You're not a good husband. All of these things that we don't want to hear, we do hear. And the only way to, to get rid of the voice in your head is to, is to treat the illness. Um, and fortunately for me, you know, I, I, there was a treatment for me that worked. Not everyone gets help. Most people do get help. Most people, if you stick with it, will get um, improvement. I, I mean, I'm not cured. I, I'm still on medication. I still have bad days, but my bad days aren't terrible days. Um, so I think that word hope becomes the most important word in the mental health dictionary for sure and those people that you know that they think that they're better off or they think their family's gonna be better off they're definitely 100 percent wrong because the family will then live with that for the rest of their lives so their life will even be infinitely worse than it was before for sure you know what it is john it's like okay how how poignant can depression be with us and the answer is, can you imagine it is it can be so hard on us. It can deceive us so much that a parent would think that their kid would be better off without them, better off with them dead, better off with them having ended their own life. That's the power of the illness that is staggering for someone who's never been through it to understand. Yeah, it's just crazy like to think about stuff yeah. like that. Absolutely. So that tattoo like has meaning to you as far yes. as as when you look at it, that you that's where you. Yeah, I mean, I mostly use it because, uh, you know, I spend my time doing what I'm doing now with you. And that's talking about mental health and trying to make a difference in somebody else's life because uh, because someone understands them. The power of feeling like you're understood is uh, is you you can't you have no idea how important it is for someone to go. Oh, my gosh, someone understands me. So this represents, you know, a bit of my story. Uh, it represents a conversation uh, item that I can use to uh, to talk about suicide. It shows people that I understand sort of the depth of real pain. So it's it's kind of a it's kind of a prop for me to some extent to try to uh, connect with people in a way that um, sometimes can be very difficult to connect with. I just got to go back to Vince McMahon just for a yeah. minute because I'm so fascinated just about that because of how great you were with him a few times when you had him on. But how do you get him on to begin with? Because that doesn't okay. seem like an easy thing to do or an easy guy to get on because I know off the record it's a big show, but it's like how do you even go about getting him on a few times? Yeah, in a lot of ways off the record became a big show because of wrestling. Because So it, it's pretty easy to explain and uh, no credit to any of us uh, before uh, we ended up doing these interviews. Um, TSN, where I work, created this show. TSN also owned the rights to Raw and Nitro. Uh, Raw was on every Monday night and then replayed at uh, four o'clock the next afternoon. Our show was on six o'clock after it. Uh, and so there was a, a partnership between TSN and uh, and WWE. Same thing for WCW, but they weren't nearly as interested in doing what we did with WWE or WWF at the time. And uh, the first week we were on the air, we had uh, we had a three guest panel, um, which because uh, we didn't talk about doing one on one interviews, right? It was it was going to be a panel discussion, uh, kind of like. Uh, it would have been politically incorrect. I don't know if you remember that show. Bill Maher did it. Oh, yeah. And, and what I loved about the show was the fact that he had people from all walks of life debating something that kind of united them. Like no one was an expert necessarily in the subject. They just had opinions. And that's what we tried to create. So um, management wouldn't let us have four guests to start with. It was only three. So we did this panel on the Thursday of our first week. And Bret Hart was a guest. I don't know how we booked Bret Hart. I, I, I don't know. I, I just don't remember. Uh, and he came up to me after the show and said, you know, Michael, 
I thought it was, uh, it was, uh, you know, it was a pretty good show, but you don't need anybody else when I'm on. Put me on. Let me talk. And it was like, okay, yeah, we'll do that. And then Survivor Series kind of uh, all happened. Uh, and he was looking for an outlet that would treat him with respect. The reason why wrestlers came to us and the reason why we had such a good relationship was we treated them with respect. You know, it wasn't like, you know, Bob Costas had this terrible interview with Vince McMahon. And I think Vince was, and I love Bob Costas, but Vince was pissed off that he was being treated kind of like a sideshow. And, you know, we had no interest whatsoever in having guests on in character, right? Like why, you know, imagine talking to The Rock when The Rock is talking like The Rock, you know, then I'm just part of the gag, right? But we got Dwayne Johnson instead of The Rock. And it became huge for us to the point where our ratings would quadruple. Like it was insane how uh, I remember on a holiday Monday, we played the Stone Cold interview uh, and we drew, I think it was, uh, now keep in mind, Canada is one-tenth the size of America, so everything is kind of 10 to 1. I think we drew 525,000 viewers at 6 o'clock, which would be the equivalent of 5.5 million almost viewers at 6 o'clock in the United States uh, for a cable show that has, you know, kind of niche. It was insane how much because wrestling audience is portable right if you if you tell you know a football fan hey you can hear eli manning and peyton manning i used eli because of the giants you know talking about daniel jones uh, people aren't going to go oh my god i gotta be there right um, because you can hear and see you know those kinds of discussions everywhere but if you tell a wrestling fan you will see uh stone cold steve austin on off the record next tuesday at six o'clock wrestling fans are 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 going to come it's the only portable audience that I have ever found. The wrestling audience is so loyal too. You know, it's like crazy loyal, yeah. even more so than like some sports fans. I mean, they're just like obsessive, nutty. They they love it, especially if it's a big name like a, a Bret Hart or something, because everybody then starts getting oh off the off the record. They they get good guests or they get wrestlers or they have real interviews with the wrestlers, not a Costas attack piece where he's like literally trying to fight Vince and threatening him and they're going back. It's like, wow, Michael Landsberg does actual good interviews with these guys. You know, we had this great team. Um, one of uh, the producer of the show was a guy named Bob Makowitz, uh, who became my best friend. Uh, and uh, he, one of his friends growing up was a guy named Jeff Merrick. I don't know if you know that name. Jeff Merrick did a show called Live Audio Wrestling. Now he does hockey on Sportsnet. But Jeff was doing live audio wrestling, right? And knew, you know, like his best friends were all wrestlers. He knew, like he could say, okay, you know, we have, or Michael has uh, um, Chris Jericho on the show um, next week. Um, let's discuss some of the inside stuff that's been going on with Chris Jericho, like behind the curtain in the dressing room, you know, the relationship with WWE, all, all the stuff that we talked about. And Jeff would give me this gold that, um, wrestlers would go, how did you know that? Yeah, I remember talking to Undertaker and I said to him, uh, uh, by the way, I loved him. I thought he was a really smart, interesting guy. Uh, I said, you know, is it true that, um, Backstage, I, I guess it was uh, Shawn Michaels. Um, he was backstage and he came back after not doing the job for Vince. And you looked at him and said, you get back out there or we got a big problem. Is that true? And he said, yeah, I, I don't know how you knew that. And I said, you know, so what would you have done if, if he didn't, uh, if he didn't want to do what you said? And he said, uh, I, I would have, I would have shown him a let I would have taught him a lesson. Um, I'm sorry, did I say Shawn Michaels? Yes. Brett Michaels. Hold on. Brett Michaels is the lead singer of Poison. Poison, who's, yes. Who's a guest on Off the Record one day, by the way. Oh, I um, didn't realize that. Yeah, well, you know, we did 4,000 shows. And uh, because of the nature of our show, we got to put anybody on, you know, if we thought that a viewer would like to hear what they had to say. You were right, uh, though. It was Shawn Michaels, yeah. Yeah. And uh, that was like this amazing experience. You know, we put musicians on, which was like this amazing thing because, you know, we, we had, uh, you know, tons of famous musicians and actors. And, you know, what, what a great job that is to be sort of the, the person stick handling that. So um, asking those questions was 100% Jeff and Bob, 0% me. 
Now, I mean, I obviously I had to execute it, but I take I, I don't take much credit for the quality of those shows and the the news that we made uh, because uh, I I was gifted those questions. So were you a wrestling fan with some knowledge or not really? Yeah, yeah. I was a wrestling. I mean, as a kid growing up, I was a wrestling fan. Uh, I was, uh, I, I certainly had probably taken a hiatus from wrestling fandom um, from, uh, you know, until off the record started. And then uh, it became just really good business and it became, you know, really cool. My son also was very young at the time and he, he loved wrestling. Uh, he used to say to me, I remember I would come home and I would say, uh, Corey, I, I, I got, I got some bad news for you. Um, you know, the Jays game is on TSN tonight and Wrestle Raw is going to be pushed back to midnight. And he was, he was young, right? He would start screaming and crying. And it was like, it was devastating for him. That's the power of wrestling, right? People love wrestling in a way that they don't love many other things in their life. As you said, more so than most sports fans love their sport. You know, NFL football is my favorite thing. Uh, NBA basketball would be number two. But as much as I may love uh, NBA basketball and NFL football, I would say it would pale by comparison to how much wrestlers love or wrestling fans love wrestling. It's great, especially when I was younger. Man, if Hulk Hogan lost, I was pissed. Like when you're younger, of course. Giants lose, like, yeah, I kind of expected that a few years. Like, you can, but no, not Hogan losing. So, yeah, wrestling definitely is different. Yeah, people. Uh, I, I mean, that's why it's it remains successful, right? I mean, they uh, it just you know when they when they do one of the million crowd shots because the crowd becomes you know a, a prop for this or a performer in this, you know, you see the passion that people have, uh, and the belief was that you know if people find out that the result is predetermined, you know, they're not going to like it anymore, and then you know finally Vince admitted, yeah, I mean the result is predetermined, and nobody cared. It's kind of like, okay, well, I, I don't care that this movie that I just saw or this television show. I mean, I've been watching Better Call Saul. I waited for the series to complete and I'm watching it now. I don't care that, you know, Saul doesn't exist. I, I, it's, you know, like, like we all want to, um, you know, we all want to take a break from our lives and embrace something that is make-believe. And I think that's why wrestling works. Whenever somebody wants to use the F word, you know, fake with wrestling, I would say, have you ever watched anything on TV or a movie? Yeah, it's course. the same exact thing right. as all it that. Is. It is for sure. With Undertaker, that's just an interesting one because he doesn't or at that point he does now. But at, when you interviewed him, he didn't do a lot of out of character stuff like he never he stayed I, away I, from that stuff. He did. And I mean, that was the power of TSN uh, in the partnership with WWE. And it was also um, the fact that guys wanted to do the show because the ultimate respect that you can show someone is, is learning about them and asking them questions that are challenging and interesting. Uh, so we kind of got the reputation of, you know, like I remember Kurt Angle when he first did the show, it was like, you know, he, he I, I think they reached out and said, Kurt wants to do the show. Uh, because there weren't a lot of places that they would be taken seriously, that they would be asked questions that had nothing to do with their characters and everything to do with their background, how they got in the position they were, and how they deal with it. Did Vince want to do the show, or did you guys want Vince to do the show? Uh, we uh, Vince came to us because that was during Survivor Series, and you know that's when Brett said, you know, uh, called it the screw job, and how you know, Vince lied to him. And, you know, like Brett was, was about as angry as you can be. And I, I think Vince wanted to have his say, right? Uh, and I mean, here's the thing. I mean, I like I worked Vince over and got him to admit that he lied to Brett. But I'm not fooling myself to think that, you know, I, I broke him, you know, like he wouldn't have given it up if he didn't, if he didn't think at that point, it was the right thing to do. Uh, so Vince reached out and said, you know, I want to do the show. And then he, um, you know, repeatedly actually reached out to us and said, okay, I'm going to be in town. Let's do it. Then when Owen died, he reached out to us and said, you know, I haven't done any interviews, but, you know, I'll do off the record if you guys will come down there. So we went down to uh, Stanford uh, and uh, used their studios to uh, to do the interviews, which which is weird, right? Because it's like yeah. you're on a road game, right? <laughs> You're uh, you're in somebody else's home environment, 
And now you've got to interview them about something that is really painful for them uh, and really difficult for them to kind of admit any culpability. So I'm sitting there going, well, this is really weird. If, if I was in, intimidatable at that point, I would have been intimidated. But so we decided when we were down there that because we were getting Vince, that we would do a second show with Vince and Linda, and then we would do a, a third show with Shane and Stephanie. And so when I was uh, interviewing Vince for the first show, uh, Shane is in the control room and he's pissed man. he's yelling at Bob, the producer who's who's producing the show from their control room. And he's in my ear. Right. And he's he's saying, oh, God, Shane's in here. He's pissed off. He's just going to fight you. And it was like, whoa, you know, I, I didn't say anything because now yeah. I'm on the air. He's just telling me that. Uh, and it was like he came down like super mad. And Vince said to him nothing wrong with the questions he asked, you know, like thought that's, he did what he should be doing. And that is pressing me hard. Uh, and, uh, I, I just thought that that was a really sort of cool moment. Was that like the hardest interview you had to do? Because it is a road game, like you said, but it's Vince. And then there's, you know, there's a huge lawsuit. There's a death involved. I mean, yeah. that's gotta be a tough. Yeah. Yeah. As far as, I mean, I don't remember exactly what I was thinking, but it was, it was certainly challenging. Uh, and again, you know, like the challenge is, are you willing to expose yourself to potential ridicule, right? If, if I'm asking questions to Vince that, that he knows a thousand times more than I know, uh, if I, if, if, if I get it wrong, he's going to jump on it, right? He wouldn't have just like, you know, thought, oh, I don't want to be a dick. I'll just let Landsberg say whatever, you know, like, I don't want to correct him. He would have jumped down my throat because that was the nature of these interviews. So, you know, that that, uh, you know, remains to this day, the biggest challenge about being an interviewer where you want to challenge guests and you do more than one sport. If all I did was wrestling, then I would have known a thousand times more. But, you know, we did every sport, including wrestling. So it was like, God, you know, I could have made such a fool of myself saying something that was clearly wrong. Shane, OK with you later on? I think so. I I, uh, I met Stephanie a whole bunch of times afterwards, um, but I I don't think I I don't think I saw Shane after that after we left that day. Uh, but he, uh, you know, like his dad said to him, you know, like don't be a baby. <laughs> wow. With like the Owen and the Brett stuff, does anybody or did anybody at that point say, oh, he's pro Canada, he's going to defend all the Canadian wrestlers? Was that ever a thing? Because it seemed like obviously you were agreeing with Brett, but it was almost like Brett was right in, in a certain aspect. Right. But I also said to Brett when I interviewed him about uh, Survivor Series and the screw job, I said to him, like, like, because the, the key is to take the opposing view um in in especially something like like sports right where you're not hanging your reputation on your opinion on something whereas you know if you're talking about abortion then you know to fight against your own opinion you know would be really damaging but you know we're talking about wrestling and my job is to in that situation is to get brett to clarify his position and to you know fight for his position and i said you know what i don't understand brett is that um i mean you're a wrestler you know, there's a script as, you know, as to what you're supposed to do, you know, like Vince gets to decide he's the boss. Uh, and if he decides that you're going to lose, you may not like it, but that's the nature of it. You know, you like an, an actor, you know, you're Robert De Niro. Are you going to walk off the set because uh, the director um, told you to do it in a certain way? I, I would assume you wouldn't do it. And that was my way of of remaining uh, impartial because obviously I challenged Vince the same way that I challenged Brett. Play a little devil's advocate, I guess you could say. To totally. I mean, that that's the job. Like who wants to hear, you know, an interview with someone where it's, you know, everything is just, yeah, yeah, it's a great answer. It's like, that's no fun. That's not my style. Uh, and that's the, what wrestlers really, I, I think what they appreciated was the fact that they would be challenged and they'd have to use their brains. My only thing with the Brett stuff is he had partial creative control. So like you almost had acquiesce a little bit to him, but also Vince got caught on tape because of wrestling with shadows, the Bret Hart documentary <laughs> agreeing to, yes, we're going to do a smiles. It's going to, you know, it's going to end this way. So like he eventually gets caught when that comes out, like, Oh, you lied to him twice. That's like, Oh, okay. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. For sure. But also, you know, I mean, that's the see, see, Brett, because he was such a, a, a star, you know, had 
uh, in his mind. Uh, and as you said, he had some con creative control, but but he he really believed that he um, that others should do what he wanted them to do. Whereas a guy like me, who was, you know, not in his position, but also, you know, I understood the nature of my boss and me and, uh, you know, and how at, at the end of any debate, I kind of got to, I got to give up on it. I'm not going to say, okay, well, you know what? Uh, I, I don't agree with this. Um, I, I quit. I mean, but Brett had already quit, right? So he was in a position uh, at that point that complicated it, right? Because he was going to WCW, which maybe when he made that decision, it gave up, he gave up a bit of his creative license. I don't know. I mean, it's it's just, it's a fun debate. To me, it's all Bischoff's fault because if Bischoff didn't have Medusa throw the woman's title in the garbage, it wouldn't be on Vince's radar that he's going to take the title and throw in the garbage. No, you know, true. Partially, no, you true. know what I mean? It's partially yeah. his fault. Yeah, I mean, Eric uh, Eric was one of the guys that wanted to come on the show, and he walked in, and it, like it was, it was so obvious. He's going, you're not you're not going to take me down, Landsberg. Uh, you know, I'm smarter than you. Um, you know, I'm this, I'm that. Uh, and so he came in like with guns a blazing, which I thought was awesome. Cause you know, when you're the host of a show and you have a really good debate with someone and you lose that debate, you still win, right? Because it's good TV. I mean, which is ultimately the only job, you know, check your ego and don't have to win every argument if they are entertaining arguments. Uh, and he said to me, uh, um, they were talking about the Monday Night Wars, and he, uh, I guess they had won for a certain amount of time. And he said, uh, I said, well, you know, it, it ebbs and flows. I don't remember how I said it, but, you know, like you, you guys will lose the wars eventually. And he said, uh, no way. And I said, OK, well, let's bet. And he said, well, you know, I'll come back here and I'll give you 50 bucks if, uh, if we ever lose, uh, you know, the Monday Night Wars again. And uh, it didn't take long, actually, for everything to turn. Funny. It's like 80, the 83 weeks of dominance is what, what they refer to as 83 weeks. He actually has a podcast about it and does shows and everything else. So that's what they call it. It's actually really like 90 weeks if you really delve into it further. And it was 104 out of 117 weeks. So it's like it, they were dominating. So I could see his bravado, of course. I mean, yeah, but also, don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I think that uh, uh, Eric is a super smart guy. Uh, I find him to be likable now. Uh, I interviewed him a couple of times since then, not not about wrestling, but about uh, whatever he was doing at the time. I think his show is great. Uh, I'm a I'm a big fan of his. Uh, but he you know, like he came in uh, with this really, really cocky swagger. I shouldn't be one to talk, but um, <laughs> I thought, OK, well, you know, I got to stand up to him. And uh, if 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 I lose this, who cares? Because I win because the show's good. I just like love looking back at some of like the interviews because like, man, you had Bischoff, Vince, Vince is like the tippy top, Austin tippy top, Hogan tippy top, um, even Chris Benoit. I know some people might not like him now, obviously, and saying it, but like if you look at, it, it's like, holy shit, get Chris Benoit, Bret Hart, like man, the pick of the litter of like the best ever. Yeah, uh, Chris Benoit was. Uh, I found him to be very unusual. Like I can't sit here and say I, you know, I thought something was wrong with him. But I just I found him to be kind of kind of weird. And he kept calling me Mr. Landsberg. And I said, I think we're the same age. Like, why are you calling me Mr. Landsberg? And he said, uh, because, you know, you deserve my respect. I said, well, you deserve my respect, but I'm not calling you Mr. Benoit, you know. Uh, and I, I just I there was something about him that um, I found to be. Um, not not frightening at all. I mean, I'm not suggesting for a second that I knew that, you know, that he was in a lot of trouble. But the last time he was on the show, we were talking about Eddie Guerrero, uh, who I guess was one of his best friends. And yep. we're talking about how uh, he said, well, you know, Eddie um, became addicted to substances or alcohol. I don't remember what it was and, you know, kind of blamed it on wrestling. And he said, that's, he said, that's BS. It, you know, like wrestling doesn't do that to you. And, and subsequent to, to that, obviously we know that, um, you know, Chris, Chris died and, you know, in the worst, most imaginable, unimaginable way. Uh, and, you know, when I, when I think back to how he was very defensive for wrestling, uh, I find that um, to be tragically ironic, right? Because, you know, I don't know how much wrestling played in, uh, in his ultimate demise and his mental illness, which ended up obviously in a terrible way. 
But I would say that there was a relationship between uh, the drugs that he took, uh, the blows that he took to the head, the fact that, you know, you couldn't say, I don't think I'm good. Uh, I think I need help. And I, I think, in, you know, in Chris's case, I don't think he could imagine his life without wrestling. Like that was it. So there was nothing he was going to do that was going to compromise his position. So I just found it um, when I went back and watched uh, recently um, um, the Benoit interview um, when he talked about Guerrero. I thought, wow, you know, like if if we uh, if we could have only looked in the future, he may have seen it in a different way. Definitely. I know he's had, I don't even know how many documented concussions, but I think it was, it was like 50 documented concussions. Who knows how many undocumented. They were saying that when they studied his brain, it was like an 80-something-year-old brain. Like, yeah. Who yeah. knows what was going on? But he obviously never got the help he needs to get, obviously. No, no and, and that's the difficult position that he was in, right? Because, uh, like I said, you know, if wrestling is everything to you, then the idea that you may do something that would compromise uh, how you're seen and the chances that you get. Like if he came out and said, you know, I, I, I'm not well. And, you know, his greatest fear would be that, you know, people would find out that obviously he was incredibly messed up, incredibly, uh, incredibly sick and affected by all the things that we talked about. Uh, they, I'm sure he would fear that he would be prevented from, uh, from from wrestling. I mean, I don't know if you're watching the Dolphins Bills game last weekend, but when Tua came back after what looked to be a concussion, um, you you might say, well, why would a guy come back in a game? And you know, you can't ever give uh, a football player, a hockey player, contact sports stuff, or a wrestler control over whether or not they participate because almost always they will want to suck it up and go back. In Tua's case, he wanted to beat the Buffalo Bills. In Chris's case, he wanted to continue to be a WWE superstar. And the Tua thing was weird because you could tell he was concussed, but then they said he had a back injury. I was like, that like that made no sense. Yeah, and they're still sense. saying he has a back injury. I'm like, what? Yeah. Well, when you lie, you got you to stay with the lie. I mean, the NFL is never really – the NFL has this problem that their sport causes brain damage, right? I mean, no matter what you do, you can't get a, around that. Uh, and it's, 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 they can't say that, you know, football causes brain damage, but, you know, w watch a game, you know, watch, watch hits to the head, you know, that aren't necessarily intentional. So, you know, the league has to find a way to minimize um, what people say about them when it comes to concussions and need to um, they need to keep people on the field. Right. You know, like quarterback in a big game like that, big marquee matchup, uh, Bills and Dolphins, Dolphins rejuvenated, you know, first time they played decent in years. Uh, they want the starting quarterback for the Dolphins to be in there. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, yeah. I know they're pumping up the helmets and like, I don't know, like when when there's head uh, head hitting the ground or head to head combat, the helmets can only do so much. It's true. And I mean, the helmet, unfortunately, uh, I think it was uh, it wasn't until Jack Tatum, who was uh, a safety for the Raiders, when he realized that his helmet was a weapon uh, and that he could he could use it to destroy the opposition. And unfortunately, he did destroy one player's life. Uh, and it, it became then in vogue. I mean, that that's it was looked at as a good hit. Right. Wow. You know, he just nailed him. He stuck his helmet right right in, you know, the other guy's face into his helmet. That was I was looked at as a good hit. And then one day someone realized, OK, well, you know, like these blows to the head. You know, we're finding that people when they turn 40 or 45, you know, like these guys are not in good health. And then the whole CTE thing came about, which was uh, I guess it was uh, it may have started in wrestling. Um, it was uh, what was his name? He actually wrestled for a short period of time. Nowinski. Chris. Yeah. And, and I actually Chris did off the record probably 15 times because it was such a relevant question for us. But uh, it wasn't until, you know, people stepped back and said, well, you know what you're doing to people you know you can't just you can't just say oh he got his bell wrong how many fingers two okay get back out there uh even though that still probably does happen uh it's it's really frightening yeah so t higgins in the jets game they brought him back in too i was like man his eyes were completely glazed yeah. over that was a bad one do you remember a quarterback named chris miller he played for a million teams falcons uh, and, rams yeah. i think yep yes yeah, I mean, I, I guess he was mostly a Falcon. And at the end of his career, you know, a, a, 
a, a veteran quarterback is still in demand, right? To have as a backup, right? Who's not going to demand much money. And you know that, you know, he's going to learn the system and he'll be able to, uh, you know, implement the game plan, whatever it is, may not be able to execute it the same way. Uh, Chris Miller kept getting jobs and guys that played with him at the end said that he he would come back to the huddle and he, he, he would talk like he's on the wrong team. Like, like he would be calling Rams plays um, for the Falcons and guys would say, no, no, that, that doesn't exist. We, we don't know what that terminology is. And, and he would go, oh, wow. Oh my God. You know, because he was a veteran quarterback and no one really cared whether or not they were using up the brain cells that he would need the rest of his life to live a normal life. Yeah. Sad state of affairs. I mean, it's a rough sport, and obviously, they got to. I don't know what you could do about it. I know you can help the helmets, but concussion protocol and everything else, that's a tough, tough, uh, slippery slope. It is for sure. So, as we hit the wind down here, we head towards the finish. Just give me a couple of your all time favorite interviews. Doesn't matter, wrestling or not, but. Oh, let's keep it to wrestling. Uh, I I told you, uh, Undertaker, uh, although he was Mark Calloway, Um, CM Punk who just absolutely, I don't know if you, you saw it, but it was, uh, it was an example of uh, what, what is, um, sorry, I'm, I'm just uh, looking, I, I have to pick up my dog. So oh. um, that, that's why I was distracted, but you are more important than my dog. Okay, oh, that thank was a you. lie, you're not. <laughs> um, so uh, CM Punk was a guest on Off the Record when he left UFC, when he left WWE to go to UFC. And um, so it was that transition point and he was doing media, I guess, talking about, you know, his, you know, signing with UFC. And uh, we, he was in a studio in New York. Uh, I'm in Toronto, obviously. Uh, I can see him. He can't see me. And we're just talking. Right. I said, I I don't know if you know anything about me. Right. Like, why, why would he? And never assume someone does. And he said, oh, no, I I know like about your wrestling interviews or whatever. And we started talking and, you know, uh, just, kind of friendly and then the show started and uh i guess according to him that i i i totally changed on him that i set him up by being so nice beforehand my my first question to him was you know i'm, I'm really interested in this because you leave wrestling uh, an incredibly dangerous sport when it comes to injuries but it's a different kind of danger you know guys aren't trying to hurt you they're actually trying not to hurt you. And unfortunately, uh, that gets away. So I understand the danger of the sport. Um, but I have to ask you, have you ever taken like a real punch to the head? And he said, what? And I said, well, like a real punch. I mean, he said, never seen any of my matches. I go, yeah, I, I know. And, and I like your matches. And I think you're amazing. But those are not real punches like you will take in the UFC where, you know, if you expose your chin, someone is going to hit it hard and keep hitting it hard until you either go down or the ref jumps in. And he was like pissed off at that, like right from the get go and started to, uh, you know, like I said, what, what's the problem? Like later on in the interview and he said, eh, well, nothing, uh, you, you know, you got your uh, your way, you know, like uh, all of a sudden, you know, like you're the uh, cool kid in school uh, and uh, I got you, buddy. I got you. And I started, I, I didn't really get mad because I thought it was really good TV, but I, you know, I, I didn't like the way he was kind of condescending to me. And uh, I, I said that to him and uh, it kind of became legendary. Uh, CM Punk and uh, Landsberg for me, it wasn't legendary for him. I'm sure, you know, I'm sure he, you know, not significant for him, but for me, it was. Anybody else stick out? Maybe Brad or Vince or... Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, for sure. Brett and uh, Vince, uh, Jericho, we let Jericho actually host off the record a few times because, you know, he was it was funny because he sits down the first time and he goes uh, and I, I think I was a guest on the show. So there was there was four guests and Jericho. We were doing like a panel show and he uh, he starts to talk and uh, he, he was nervous, which which is is natural. Right. When you're out of context, when you're kind of doing something totally different. And you know that everyone expects you to be amazing. Uh, and he just, he goes, where, where, where's that tape? Uh, you know, the monkeys in the truck can't get it straight. And I said to him, you know, I've done this show probably at that point, it was probably our fifth year. So I had done a thousand shows. I go, you know, I've done a thousand shows, Chris. And I never once criticized 
people in the truck or people behind the scenes. And it took you exactly two minutes to do it. And we laughed about that. And uh, I mean, Chris Jericho is a very likable guy, um, great personality, love the guy, uh, and really enjoyed sort of getting to know him uh, in that context. Uh, I, uh, I'm trying to think of, uh, I love Trish. Uh, Trish actually got her start on, uh, on Off the Record. We were looking um, for a woman to put on the show when TSN had signed a new deal with WWE and they they sent down Owen Hart and Edge and I'm not sure who the other person was and we wanted a woman on the show uh, and um, I reached out to a magazine called Oxygen which is I guess a, a woman's health magazine and said can you suggest anyone that you think would fit in well wouldn't be intimidated and knows wrestling and she said well I know this one person she talks all the time Trish Stratus so I called Trish on the phone, which I typically didn't do because other people, you know, booked the show. Right. Uh, and I said, you know, how would you like to do this? And she said, you know, I I'm in and this is my chance to show the WWF at the time, I guess it was, that um, that I can be really good and I'm going to parlay this into a career. And it was like, oh, my God, you know, like she said it and she did it. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, she gets full credit. Like if you asked her, well, how'd you get your start? She would say on off the record, but we didn't, you know, she was the one that, you know, that gave this great performance. She was the one that had, you know, the guts to uh, reach out to Vince McMahon. And uh, I have total appreciation for her. And she hasn't aged a day since. She has not. Now, could we, uh, could we do a part two to this sometime? Cause I'm yes, really I enjoying it. Yep. Definitely going to do a part two before we let you go. Tell us where we can find you and sick now week and everything else. Well, my address is 457. Oh, so <laughs> when you say find me. It's also media wise. Yeah. 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 You know, I'm, uh, I, we have a website, sicknotweek.com. I'm on, uh, I'm on Twitter every day at Hey Landsberg and at sicknotweek, uh, all forms of social media. And, uh, you know, if you, uh, I'm, I'm not, I'm not selling anything except for me, right? If you if you think, hey, you got a company and people could use to hear this talk, tell me to talk to your company. I'll do it. Awesome. Well, Michael, thank you so much for all time. Really appreciate it. We'll have you back for part two. Yeah, loved it. Thanks, man. Great questions. Uh, really appreciated your thoughtfulness. This has been a John Paz Power Trip production in conjunction with the Two Man Power Trip of Wrestling. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Two Man Power Trip. You can check us out on Facebook. You can subscribe on YouTube. You can go to patreon.com slash TMPT Empire to become a patron. And also check out the website tmptempire.com and buy a shirt at prowrestlingtees.com. Two Man Power Trip, where the power lies brother.